the person across the desk from you is the most important person in the world and at that moment is the only person in the world. Welcome to Sauce Talk, a podcast exploring meditation, mental training, and sports and other related topics. This is Billy Hansen. And got some great feedback about the yoga terrorist in incident. I think my favorite bit of advice came from my friend Jake Skarmanach, who advised me to, if this happens again, if this woman places her mat on my mat when I'm out of the room, um, that I should just go sit on both mats and then face the fire when she comes back. And I think that'd be pretty funny, and it would force us to have the uh, the conversation, the confrontation that is probably necessary. I also had my friend John Conley, who's offered to come with me to a yoga class and have it out with this woman, which would also be pretty funny. So I'll keep you posted on how that all of that unfolds. So today's guest is Dan Snyder. I've been looking forward to putting this episode out for a while. Dan has a very unique background. He started off as a high-level athlete and then transitioned into the business world. He spent 13 years at IBM in sales and sales management positions, um, and then nine years at J.D. Edwards as vice president and senior vice president of field operations. And after that, he was able to retire very early at age 43, I think. Um, and then he went into what he claims was what he really wanted to do all along, which was coach basketball. So he coached for 16 years, and that includes eight years as the head coach at Arapahoe High School in Colorado. And he led the team to three league championships, six straight Elite Eight appearances in the state tournament, including one year in the state finals and another year in the state semifinals. And his overall record as a coach at Arapahoe was 165 and 43, which is pretty impressive. So this podcast is going to be about sports and business and how they relate. And it's really just an opportunity to present um, some of Dan Snyder's ideas and thoughts because he is just a fascinating person. And him and I have had many long conversations on bus trips and in the coaching office together and he helped me a lot during my senior year with my shot, and it was just a really inspiring person to be around. One more thing, this is actually the first podcast that I recorded all the way back in early December, and I was still getting used to recording with proper audio settings, and on my way out to record this interview, the cord to my microphone broke, so I had to record it directly onto my laptop. So the audio is less than ideal, but I think it turned out okay anyway. Oh, one more thing. We talk about Kobe here, which and it was before Kobe died. And this is the, you know, I think I may have brought up Kobe in most of these episodes somehow, but um, so it might sound a little odd that we don't mention Kobe's tragic demise here as well, but we recorded it before that accident happened. Okay. And with that, here is Dan Snyder. Coach Dan Snyder, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's great to be here. So I wanted to just briefly touch on your playing career. Could you tell me where you grew up and something about your childhood sports experience? 
Sure. So I grew up in Southern California. I was born in Los Angeles and raised in South Pasadena, a suburb. I tell people not too far from the Rose Bowl. Um, played sports. My dad had played football at USC and was really into sports. So as a child growing up, baseball was my first love and I actually was quite a good baseball player. Uh, and then I started getting very interested in basketball. So those were the primary two sports. I played uh, one year of football. Um, but up through high school, I was a basketball and baseball player. I was an all-league player in both. I'm actually in my high school Hall of Fame, uh, the Athletic Hall of Fame, which it goes, it's an election process. So there's a panel that votes on people. So I was a good player uh, in both sports. I then decided I wanted to play basketball in college. And uh, I was very lightly recruited. This is um, 40 years ago now. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I went to the University of Redlands, which is now a Division Three program. At the time, we were NAIA, and uh, they still had freshman teams back then. I was kind of at the end of, uh, of that. So I played a year on the freshman team and actually had a really good year, a good experience. I was the MVP of the freshman team. And um, the, the problem was I had hurt my wrist fairly significantly and I fell in a hiking accident um, actually before my senior year in high school and my wrist didn't heal properly and this was all discovered after my freshman year of playing basketball and the doctor told me we're going to have to do a bone graft on your wrist and you're not going to be able to play basketball for a year. So make a long story a little bit shorter, um, I decided if I wasn't going to be able to play for a year that I would transfer. From Redland. So the coach was really upset. Actually, he worked on me pretty hard. I actually called my dad as well. Um, but I wasn't unhappy with him or, or with the program. I did want to go to a bigger school. So I transferred from Redlands to Arizona State. And that's a 2,000 uh, student school to at the time about a 50,000 student school. I had a great time at Arizona State, but I did not uh, compete intercollegiately. Um, I just was in intramurals. I did, as I probably told you, I did set the school record for free throws in a contest. I made 98 out of 100 wow. free throws, which at the time was the second best ever nationally mm. for intramural uh, competition. But I had a great time there. Um, and that really, after leaving college, I continued to play basketball uh, for many years, just in you know rec leagues and, and some pro-ams in Los Angeles, like all of us nice. tend to do. Okay, cool. And you have a very unique business career that you went into after basketball. So as deep as you want to go into that, could you just tell us what, um, how you transitioned into the workforce and um, a little bit about your success in business? So at Arizona State, I was a business major. That's another reason I, I wanted to transfer um, ASU at that time and even today has an outstanding business school. And I was very interested in going into business, but didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. So I went through, I was actually a general business major. So I wasn't a management major, marketing or accounting or anything, finance. I was general business. So I took a cross section of all the business classes, really enjoyed that. And um, at that time, they had a great on-campus interview program where they would bring companies on campus since they were such a big, good business school and big and companies would come on campus and we had to prioritize. You'd fill out a little card and give them your resume. Um, and I had a good college resume. I was president of my fraternity. I was very active 
uh, on campus. I, I was in a group that was giving campus tours, that kind of thing, and as well as you know being an intramural superstar and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so anyway, I filled out uh, this card and I listed IBM as my number one preference. At that time, IBM was the number one most admired company in the United States. And I said, yeah, that sounds pretty good. And, and they had outstanding training programs. So um, I interviewed the guy from IBM, came on campus. I interviewed with him. He said, yeah, we're interested in you. And would you like to come down to the local office in Phoenix? And so I said, sure. So I went over to the office. I think I had one suit at the time. So I put on that suit and drove over there and interviewed and had a very good interview there with a bunch of different people. But they told me we don't have any openings in Phoenix, but we're part of an area that's headquartered in Los Angeles. Would you be willing to go to Los Angeles? And I kind of laughed and I said, well, that's my home. Uh, so of course I'd be willing to go back there. So then they flew me out to one of the offices in LA. It was actually in Norwalk. Um, that's about 20 miles southeast of Los Angeles. And uh, I interviewed there. And they are the ones finally that offered me the job as a sales rep. So I came out of school. Um, and in those days, we didn't take a lot of time between when we came out of school and started work. I, I regret now starting. I started about a week after I got out of college. You don't do the, the music festival tour that we're required to do apparently now. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Or go to Europe for a month or something. <laughs> and uh, so I started right away. Um, I was pretty young and I was with, to make this part a little shorter, I uh, started as a sales rep for IBM selling mainframe computers. First, I trained. They, uh, the training I received at IBM, I believe, was fundamental to the success I had in my business career as well as in my coaching career. They just had outstanding training. Mm. And uh, so I did that and then became a sales rep and then started moving up the ladder. IBM promotes line, you go line, staff, line, staff, line, staff. So in hindsight, it really is very smart how they did it. And of course it makes sense because how successful they've been. So I went into management, I was in sales management. I, um, I had some good staff jobs where I was the person that did all the quotas uh, for the, all the offices in the Los Angeles area. And the Los Angeles area was a $2 billion operation. So mm -hmm. it was really big. And after being there for 13 years, um, I was about to, I was offered a promotion which was going to require us to move. And my 13 years in LA, I actually worked in four different locations, but Los Angeles is so big, they have multiple offices around LA. Uh, for example, I was a sales manager and I only had one account, it was Lockheed at the time, Lockheed Aircraft. And that was kind of interesting because you got to go at the time, Lockheed had a part called the skunk works where they did all this top secret stuff. And I got to go in there one time and it was hilarious. If you walked in there and didn't have a top secret clearance, which that was me, I didn't have a top secret clearance. They would, a guy would walk along with a flashing light held above <laughs> your head. So everyone knew here comes a guy, you know, that doesn't have clearance, but it was, it was kind of fun. So a lot of interesting experiences there, but after 13 years, my former boss at IBM had left and gone to a small software company that nobody had ever heard of called JD Edwards. And he found me, I didn't find him, he found me and said, you know, this would be a chance for you to uh, get into higher levels of management quicker as well as make a lot more money. 
And I remember one of the guys at IBM, when I told him I was leaving, so I decided to, to leave and go to this company called J.D. Edwards, which was a private company at the time. And one of my IBM mentors said, I've never even heard of this company, J.D. Edwards. And he said, you've got a great career going here at IBM. After 13 years, you're doing really well. And are you sure you want to do this? And I said, well, I'm, I'm going to try it. And so um, it turned out to be, in hindsight, uh, it was the best decision I ever made. And they gave me my choice at J.D. Edwards, this guy. He said, you can go to Atlanta, which is a field. There were four area headquarters in J.D. Edwards at the time domestically. One was uh, on the East Coast in New York. One was in Atlanta. One was in Chicago. And one was in L.A. And he said, you can go to Atlanta or you can go to Chicago or you could even come to headquarters, which is in Denver. Well, one thing I had learned from IBM is stay away from headquarters kind of as long as you can because getting field experience helps you gain a much greater understanding of how your company works. Yeah. And so uh, I said back to him, I said, which one is the worst performing unit? And he said, it's Chicago. It's the Midwest. He said, they are not doing well. And I said, okay, I'll take that one mm. uh, because I think I'll be able to turn it around. And uh, so we moved, I moved my family to Chicago and not that I wanted uh, to leave Southern California, um, but the job opportunity was so good. And we'll talk you know, a little bit more about that, about trade-offs. So we went back there and uh, at first we weren't performing all that well the first year I was there. And by year three, we had become the top performing area in the company. So we received all kinds of accolades. I was awarded area manager of the year. So at this time, I was a vice president and uh, area manager of a much smaller company in a much smaller company. Um, J.D. Edwards at the time was probably uh, 200 to 300 million in annual revenue and private. Um, and as I mentioned, the area I worked in in IBM was a $2 billion operation. So, uh, but I quickly learned that the experience that I'd gained at IBM, the management training I had, um, really served me well at JD Edwards. And they all thought that I was a great, great manager and, you know, knew what I was doing and everything. And I said, well, it's just because I received great training. Um, so anyway, in Chicago, we were really, really successful and I was responsible for nine states and all of Canada. So this went on for five years and then, uh, I got a, a big promotion to senior vice president. And this is when we moved to Denver and we were not looking to move from Chicago, but the company was headquartered in Denver and uh, my boss did give me the choice. He said, you're going to have to travel quite a bit. Um, but you can stay in Chicago if you want, but, uh, if you want to come to Denver. So my wife and I talked about it and I said, gosh, you know, do we want to spend probably 10 more winters in Chicago? Uh, whereas the weather in Denver is a lot better, much more mild winters. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because we weren't going to move our kids out of school, I should have mentioned that our kids, we didn't want them having to change schools a lot. Mm -hmm. So we decided to move to Denver and we did that. And then I had a very high level executive. I was a senior vice president and I had slightly different responsibilities, but at, um, towards the end, I was responsible for all of the America. So every, uh, part of the United States field operations, all of Canada and all of South America. Um, it was a big job. So I had about, uh, the time the company had grown to almost a billion dollars in annual revenue. And I had about 700 million of that 
uh, as my responsibility. So it was a great job. I was very highly paid. And then in um, 1997, we went public. And at that time, we were almost a billion dollars in annual revenue. Well, for a tech company, that's gigantic for mm -hmm. them to go public. Um, most tech companies are very small when they go public. And we were the largest tech IPO on Wall Street that year. And it was a very successful IPO. And those of us that were at, in high-level executive positions with the company did very well financially. So um, I stayed and was in you know some slightly different executive positions for JD Edwards until 2001, and then I started to uh, feel that I was missing some of my kids' um, growing up experiences. And I also I've always as we've already talked about I've always been very interested in sports, and I always wanted to have a chance to coach with my kids and see them participate in athletic events. And we have three boys. Um, so I made a decision to, first I made a decision to get off the road and take a different job in JD Edwards. And then ultimately I made the decision to leave JD Edwards. And I was in a financial position that I could, that I could do that at a relatively young age at the time. Um, let's see, I was 43. So I feel very fortunate to be able to have done that at 43. And uh, so I left. And as I tell people, mm -hmm. I, I then went in to do what I always really wanted to do, which was coach basketball and mm -hmm. mentor, uh, mentor people. So that's a, you know, five minute version of my business career. Nice. Yeah. And that sets you up for your success. You had coaching. I wanted to, you once asked me or you told me that um, when you were in charge of hiring people, you like to see athlete on their resume. How did being an athlete help you in your successful business career? And why did you seek out athletes in the hiring process? People that participate in team sports, in my opinion, understand a lot of things about what goes on in the business world. There's the sacrifice, the teamwork, the fact that you don't always win. So sometimes you compete for something and you lose. And uh, people that are in team sports understand that that's understand better that that's part of uh, what happens in the business world. And so I felt my athletic. There also there's a lot of uh, self starters, sacrifice. You understand how hard we have to work in order to be successful. So a lot of the skills that make you successful as a team sport athlete also mm -hmm. make you successful in the business world. And I felt that way when I was going up in the, you know, up through the business world. And I really felt that way when I was interviewing people and I would ask them a lot about what they gained from their, from their team experiences, their sports experiences. Now, I also, you can have similar things in individual sports. For example, I was a really good tennis player mm -hmm. as well. And always, so it's not that um, there's anything wrong with the more individual sports. However, you, in tennis, you know, if you're playing singles, it's all on you. And so you don't, um, you don't have to rely on someone else. Well, when you're in business, uh, usually if you're given a presentation, when I was a sales rep and a sales executive, we have, you know, we're out pitching to a, a prospect and we have a lot of people that are involved in that presentation. And if one of them does a poor job on that day, it can cost you that deal. And that's the same thing that's true if we take our, our shared experience as, as basketball people. You know, if somebody um, doesn't prepare themselves properly for a basketball game, doesn't pay attention to the scouting report, and then messes something up fairly substantially in a game, that affects the whole team. 
So I think those are very transferable. So I did look, if all things were equal, I liked to hire men and women that had some uh, team sports background for those for those reasons. There are probably a few others. This is when we took a break to have dinner with Dan's lovely wife, Lisa, before returning to our conversation. So from the moment that I uh, met you and started to see how you operated at practice and around the team, I was immediately struck by just the level of enthusiasm and free attention that you had for all the players. And you just showed up every day with this kind of free spirit or this free enthusiasm. Um, It was very consistent. And I remember specific instances where you'd be rebounding for me who at the time before the season was a player who may not have been projected to be even a rotation player, but you had full attention, full enthusiasm, were snapping chess passes and um, stuff like that was, you know, meant a lot to me as a player. And I wanted to just ask you how much of that attitude do you think just came naturally to you and how much of it did you have to develop and if you did develop it are there ways or intentions that you kept um, throughout your business career and as a coach that kept you in that mind frame well thank you for that compliment and I think a lot of that came from the business world and uh, training that I received and then also my ability to apply that training but I can't remember where and when I was taught this but it it was some when I was being learning sales techniques and stuff like that and it was that the person across the desk from you is the most important person in the world and at that moment is the only person in the world and I think that's kind of what you're talking about when you say free attention yeah and um, if you adopt that mindset um, and we learned about you know you should not and as I've already mentioned I was a high-level executive and if I'm talking to somebody in my office that's one of my employees, even a person that's multi-levels below me, if my phone would ring, I would never answer my phone. And uh, I now I had a secretary that was sitting outside my office and she would eventually answer it. But if my phone rang and I was alone in my office, a lot of times I answered it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I'm talking to someone, I would never do that. And I would instruct my secretary when she did answer the phone, unless it was the president of the company or my wife and it's some emergency, said, I don't want to be interrupted. I'm mm-hmm. talking to Billy Hansen right now and whatever we're talking about is the most important thing. So I think I learned, I think that's more of a learned quality. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the other thing is, you know, to try to live in the moment. But the other attitude I had, both in the business world and in my coaching, and I think this was very consistent and is applicable in both environments, is when you're in uh, a position to try to help other people, um, you do everything you can to help those people. And it makes you feel good. It's one of the things I really enjoyed about coaching. And when I would speak I would sometimes go and speak about coaching experiences and when people would say, what are you like best about it? Sometimes I would say, I just, I liked the things like just what you were mentioning before, working with a player on an individual skill 
and seeing that player improve. And the example I usually would give is of somebody that's at a way lower level than you were, but learning how to shoot a left-hand layup mm -hmm. or a weekend layup and teaching that young player to do that and then seeing the player do that successfully. And it gives you great satisfaction and you're focused on that. So again, I guess my answer is I think that's mostly learned. Um, you know, the other thing that my dad taught me when I was young is he, he always said, treat everyone you come across um, with the utmost respect. And he used the examples of the custodians and, um, you know, in an office building or in when I was a high school head coach. Um, the custodians loved me. I'd give them t-shirts and stuff like that and I always treated them very well. So I always, I felt, I think I, that was instilled in me by my dad. Um, so those qualities of trying to help other people, you get satisfaction from that. And then the person that you were with at that moment um, is the most important person around. And the other person that's outstanding at that is Mike Dunlap, who I worked with at Metro State and is currently the head coach at Loyola Marymount. And Mike is terrific at that. And he is what I call a master teacher. Um, but his focus um, is always on, you know, the moment and what's happening in the moment. And I always thought that Mike did a terrific job. When you mentioned how I came to practice every day, I thought Mike did a great job on that. And Mike is a guy, he never said, I'm tired or, or yeah. that sort of thing. You know, he always um, was terrific in that regard. Yeah, um, that's one of the things that some that I'm trying to cultivate with a meditation practice. And part of this podcast is about sports and the mind and how it relates. And um, one of the the teachings that you learn when you first start meditating is not to pick and choose which activities you bring your present moment awareness to or your mindful awareness, and not to treat a situation or a person with you know differential respect or attention and I remember I was you know in my th third second year practicing and when I saw the way you operated where you would you know speak with the same you know love and intention and confidence to the head coach Brady who many of us were intimidated by intimidated by as you would to someone like me or even a, a red shirt player that you had the same kind of um he showed up the same way and gave the same level. It was like very authentic and we all felt that as players and even some of my teammates felt the same thing. So I want to pivot really quick to John Wooden, who I know you have a real um, admiration for. So how did you first become a fan of John Wooden? And then I want to hear your infamous John Wooden story. <laughs> well, I do have, uh, John Wooden was influential in my life actually. And if I uh, were to show you my high school yearbook, which is sitting right over there, uh, and I will show you when we're finished here, one of my fellow students wrote in my high school yearbook, um, keep using your John Wooden quotes as you go throughout life. So I've always been a person that really enjoyed uh, quotes. And as you know, John Wooden wrote a lot of books. You can see about 15 of them up there on the bookshelf mm -hmm. right there. I think I have all of his books. And... Um, so I always, I liked how he ran. Now, again, I was born and raised in Los Angeles and I was a child when UCLA was winning all the national championships. Now, ironically, we were USC fans. You know, my dad, as I mentioned, played football at USC. So we were not big UCLA fans, but you couldn't help but admire the way John Wooden ran his program, the way he taught. And he always said that coaching was teaching. So I started reading 
some of his stuff, their his book, They Call Me Coach, you know, came out, I think, when I was a kid. And uh, I just really enjoyed the way he ran everything. And obviously, he was extremely successful as well. So as I was growing up, um, I started learning about some of the things, his quotes, uh, then the pyramid of success. So I knew about those things as I went into the business world. So then the John Wooden story that you've heard, which is one of my favorite all-time stories. And as I say, other than personal experiences in my life, uh, so the birth of my children and my marriage and that sort of thing, um, this day was probably the favorite day of my professional life. And here's what happened. Uh, this was the mid-1980s. Uh, John Wooden retired in 1975. And so this is 10 years after he retired. And at the time I was working as a staff person with IBM in downtown Los Angeles. And I was approached by a buddy of mine who worked for another staff group. And he said, I need a favor from you. And as you know, when one of your friends says, I need a favor and doesn't say anything else, you kind of scoff at it and say, <laughs> say, no, don't, you know, come to me. And he said, no, you're going to like this one. He said, we, we had a meeting, our group, and we need uh, somebody to do a, a special job for us. And we all agreed, you're the best person to do it. So I looked at him kind of funny and said, well, I can't imagine what that is, uh, but I don't know that I'm interested. And he says, well, you're going to be interested. So um, I said, okay, well, what is it? And he said, well, we need someone to go pick up the speaker for our meeting that we're hosting for probably about um, two to 300 IBM managers. We need someone to go pick up the speaker and take him to the meeting and then take him home. And I said, well, I still am not getting it. I don't know why you're selecting me. And he said, well, the speaker is John Wooden. And so I immediately changed my attitude uh, and said, you have got to be kidding. And he said, no, I'm not kidding. And I said, well, why doesn't John Wooden travel in a limousine? Why aren't we providing him with a limousine? And he said, it turns out he doesn't like to do that. He likes to have a more personal relationship with the person that's driving him. Uh, and I said, well, obviously I'm all in. I said, this, this sounds like the greatest thing ever. And as I've already mentioned, this turned out to be my favorite day, certainly in my business uh, career in 23 years in the business world. So here's what happened. I went out and picked up John Wooden at his, uh, he lived in a townhouse in Encino, a suburb in the San Fernando Valley, uh, suburb of Los Angeles. So I went and knocked on his doorbell and uh, he, he knew, you know, who I was. And he, he comes to the door because he'd been given my name. He says, yeah, Dan. And I said, Coach Wooden. And so we shook hands and we go get in my car. And, and I didn't have, I think I was driving a Honda Accord at the time. And, and um, I, so I didn't have a special car or anything. So I drove him from Encino to San Diego. And that at the time was about a three hour drive. Now it's probably five hours, but, mm -hmm. um, and so three hours down there, just me and John Wooden uh, sitting in the car chatting and talking about all kinds of things, basketball experiences, leadership. And um, he, what I tell people is he was just like he was when you saw him interviewed on TV. So he was no different from that. He's very soft-spoken, very genuine. And I loved it. And he, at one point, he said, boy, you do know a lot about basketball. And I started laughing and I said, well, coach, that's why they picked me uh, to be the one to drive you. So I, 
I drove him to San Diego. I was uh, I was instructed, obviously, to do whatever he wanted to do. So if he, you know, take him wherever he wanted to eat. So we got down there and um, I said, do you want to get something to eat? And he said, yes. And we were way early for the for the meeting. So we went into the hotel coffee shop. And so this was a big hotel like a Marriott. And we go into the coffee shop and we're having a meal and the big meeting. So this is two or three hundred IBM managers most of whom I knew because they were in our area, they go, they go on break and a bunch of people that I knew happened to walk through the coffee shop. So imagine if you walked through a coffee shop and you saw me, your buddy Dan, sitting there eating with John Wooden. <laughs> it was so funny. Um, people would, some of the people just gave me a funny look and walked on by and other people came over, you know, and said, hi, Dan, and uh, what's going on, you know? And so, so I would introduce them uh, to John Wooden. So then uh, he gave his speech. So we, we had the meal and then he gave his speech and I, I obviously just sat in the audience and then uh, I drove him home. So three hours, three hours down, uh, about an hour sitting in the coffee shop. I watched him give his speech and then three hours back and dropped him off. And uh, it was just a great time. So, you know, we could spend this whole podcast talking about the, the stories that he talked about. But he talked about how he recruited uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, known as Lou Alcindor then. It was a very unusual thing because uh, he generally didn't recruit outside of Southern California but Lou Alcindor was the best player in the country by a mile, mm -hmm. and he was in New York. And so John Wooden went to New York to recruit him, and uh, Kareem's dad worked the uh, graveyard shift. And so he met with the dad in the middle of the night, and it was just so funny how that transpired. And then he also told some very interesting Bill Walton stories, um, <laughs> amongst others, so without uh, going into more detail. So it was one of my favorite days. And then, um, as you know, and you're sitting here looking at my pyramid of success, John Wooden created the pyramid of success. That's something I've, I've used extensively. I think it's very applicable um, in the business world as well as the athletic world. And it's a really good model for young people. And when I was a high school head coach, I had all of my high school players memorize the John Wooden pyramid of success. And the two cornerstones, industriousness and enthusiasm, are terrific uh, cornerstones uh, for success. But what's really cool about my pyramid is the way he signed it. And and he signed, you know, probably a million of these pyramids and would send them out. And he usually would say, you know, best wishes in all ways to people. And mine says, best wishes in all ways and also thanks for the drive. <laughs> and it's very special to me. And so I've had it um, on the wall in my home office. It's actually not up uh, right now, but it's been on the walls of my home office. So yeah, really special for me and, and very memorable. Yeah, that's really, really amazing that you got to do that. And yeah, I've read some John Wooden and watched his TED Talk and I've always appreciated how he came off as so genuine and that he takes a very holistic approach to the individual. It's definitely to him, basketball is a part in what is, you know, really an important life and a key part, but not the only thing. And the way that he relates the message for how you should show up on the basketball court to how you should approach life is always very really interesting. Much so. Yeah. Very much so. Um, when I was a player, um, you had a way of doing something similar and that you'd give us tidbits of advice. Well, a lot of us were interested in, you know, we knew you had great financial success and we wanted to ask you about that. And also just, 
very, you know, we had plenty of time on the bus or in between practices to talk about stuff and you would impart pieces of advice and you'd have various aphorisms that um, you would use and then expand on to, to make different points. And a few of them that had stuck with me since I graduated, um, I want to run through a couple of these and get your thoughts on them. One was life is all about trade-offs. Could you talk about your philosophy on that? Yes, and I really uh, strongly believe that. I actually had a meeting with a, a high school coach this morning, and we were talking about that. And uh, when I say life is all about trade-offs, I mean it in a very positive way. So I don't mean uh, there's nothing negative to this, but you have to make certain sacrifices in order to do things. So some very simple examples would be uh, playing basketball at Regis University. Uh, Brady, Coach Bergeson, selected morning practice times very early. And for me as an assistant coach, I had to get up at 3.45 in the morning. And I'll be brutally honest with you, I do not enjoy getting up at 3.45 in the morning. <laughs> and frankly, I don't know very many people that do. Yeah. There are a few, but not many people enjoy getting up at 3.45 in the morning on a regular basis. Um, but that's an example of a trade-off because I very much enjoyed the experience of working uh, with Regis basketball and working with players like you and, and the other guys on the team and the fellow coaches. So that's a very simple example. An example in the business world is, uh, as we've already discussed, I had a number of very high-level executive jobs. And generally speaking, those jobs, they pay you very well. But the trade-offs are you're required to be away from your family, maybe more than a lot of people that are in different uh, occupations. And I can remember there are a couple of my kids' birthdays that I missed on one of my son's 13th birthday. I called him from our Sao Paulo, Brazil office <laughs> and spoke to him. And, and I didn't feel great about that, yeah. that I was away from him you know, on a special day on his 13th birthday. And he understood, and, and um, so that wasn't a problem. But that's an example of a trade-off. So I had a great job making a lot of money. Um, enjoyed the job, but the trade-off was you're traveling a lot and business travel, you know, is not glamorous. Another example I use is when I first, as I uh, told you earlier, I was born and raised in Los Angeles and my first job experience for 13 years with IBM was all in the Los Angeles area. When I left I, um, IBM and went to work for J.D. Edwards, I mentioned that we moved to Chicago. Well, I had never lived in a cold weather place at that point, and Chicago is really cold. And if you're coming from Los Angeles, it's brutally cold. And to be completely honest with you, I didn't like that. I didn't like the weather, but I had a great experience in Chicago overall. So that's an example of a trade-off. If you ask me, would I rather live in Los Angeles or Chicago? I'd rather live in Los Angeles uh, mm -hmm. because of the weather. However, I had a job opportunity that was too good to pass up. So life is all about those kind of things. And I think that young people today, so even my own children and, and young people that I give advice to and some that I even mentor, I think sometimes they don't realize that. And, and they think that everything, I should have everything. And yeah. I should have everything at a fairly young age. Um, and it just doesn't work that way. Life doesn't work that way. And so it is, that's, those are a few examples of what I mean when I say life is, is all about trade-offs. Yeah. I remember you imparting that message and I actually was slow to take that message to heart. But as a senior, I remember, um, making some of those decisions 
explicitly as a, my first three years of my career, as you know, didn't go very well. And I was definitely in the party culture. I would often scroll. We'd be, you know, driving from one unremarkable town in South Dakota to another. And I'd look at my Instagram account and see my friends at campus, like snowboarding and drinking and doing all that fun stuff. And it was hard for us to see that because we were just, you know, struggling and, um, we wanted some of that, that college experience. So trying to be a part of the sports world, the social world to its full extent in college, you know, keeping up on my video game skills, trying to get A's, um, travel, you know, trying to explore Colorado. I think I did a lot of that early on in my athletic career. And it was like, I wasn't succeeding as an athlete or really giving my full energy to it. And I also felt like I wasn't able to explore like my non athlete friends. So it was like, I was on the fence sort of and not enjoying either. I remember in one meeting, um, Brady, coach Bergeson gave a lecture about how because we chose to be athletes, we can't be Georgie Porgy on campus. And it was really funny. Um, he uh, talked about how he would love to be Georgie Porgy, which is, you know, party till 3 a.m., wake up at 2, throw the Frisbee around, and then write your paper, you know, smoke weed, do all of it. He said that that's a great life if that's your path. But if you've chosen to be in this locker room, you can't live like Georgie Porgy. Otherwise, you'll be kind of miserable and you won't have success and you'll take away from the group. And so once I dove headfirst into that as a senior and I decided, you know, okay, this is my last year. I'm going to relax on everything. I'll have plenty of time to drink. I'll have plenty of time to do everything else I want to do, but I'm just going to live a simple kind of disciplined life and focus on getting ready for basketball, you know, doing well in my classes and my meditation practice. Like those were the kind of the core. I really found myself with a lot more free attention to enjoy that and letting go of some of the other stuff. That is an excellent uh, example of what mm-hmm. I'm talking about. And I used to say the same thing to my high school players Yeah, that after, you know, the Friday night high school game that you participated in, in many of those. And a lot of people want to go out and, and party, whatever our definition of partying is for a high school student. Yeah. Um, but I said, you guys can't do that. Yeah. You know, we have practice tomorrow morning and you can party or whatever your definition of it is when the season's over. Yeah. And, but right now we have a relatively short season. So yeah, all of those are good examples. And I really believe very strongly in that statement that that's what a life is about. So examples for me and, and all of us. Yeah. And I appreciated that both you and Brady gave it in a way that it wasn't, you're better than the students on campus because you're doing this. You know, there is something beautiful about having the free time to go backpacking or go out to a ski resort. Or, so true. But that really resonated with me because it wasn't the traditional kind of pretentious message that you get from some folks in the athlete culture where it's like, you know, you're a superior for doing yeah. this. Blah, blah, blah. No way are you superior. Yeah. For, right. Um, another one you said was, get my notes here, um, half the battle showing up. Yeah. So, uh, and this also, I think so true in, in athletics as well as business, as well as life. And I think, um, and this is unfortunate, but I think a lot, a lot of people in the world today, they're not, uh, good about being reliable on when they show up and how you already talked about, gave me a nice compliment about how I showed up. So when I say half of success, in life is just showing up. It means showing up on time, ready to go, focused with your, um, you know, all your attention on. And again, this was 
Uh, Mike Dunlap was quite good about doing this. He would say, as it related to coming in the gym, he would say, leave all your other issues outside the gym when you enter the gym. And you can say the same thing about your work world. You can say the same thing about a relationship, you know, that you have with another individual. And it's back to the focus on, um, you know, being in the, in the present moment. And so if you are just, if you do what you say you're going to do, so you're true to your word. So you, you know, you, uh, talk the talk, walk the walk, uh, and you're very focused when you show up and you give your best effort. That's what I mean. In general, I think you're going to be very successful. And so whether you will at least reach your highest level abilities, which actually is the, the top part of um, the John Wooden pyramid is, you know, satisfaction that you've uh, committed yourself to being the best you can possibly be. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, that is, another, that is another one of my sayings that I like to say half a success is just showing up. And, and if you do that, you're a step ahead of everybody else. And you know how it is, by the way, one other thing I'll mention. You know how annoying it is as a player um, when someone on your team doesn't show up on time for practice. Yeah. And usually the coaches, and this was a pet peeve of mine, I'll be the first to admit it, in high school, if a player didn't show up on time for practice, uh, I would run everybody on the team, including that player, for a long time. It would wreck the practice plan. I'd be very <laughs> upset. And, uh, and nobody liked it. So you didn't like it as a player when someone else, you know, didn't show up when they were supposed to. So that's just one example. And if you're in the business world and you've got a presentation that day and your teammate, you know, quote unquote teammate doesn't show up on time, it can ruin your presentation and cost you that, that business deal. Right. Yeah, that's great. What about the third one that I wrote down of the many that you have is you're always being evaluated. So this is one um, that I kind of developed myself. I don't recall um, learning this, and there are different ways of saying a lot of these things that I feel there are different ways of saying them. But um, I feel like the way, this is kind of the, the rules of the world, so to speak, that um, everyone is evaluating you in some capacity all the time. Now, I will. I want to start even before I get into this with kind of a 98% rule. Yes, there is a. There's two percent of the time um, when you're completely by yourself and and um, you know you're off. You're sitting at the park or something, and um, yeah, you you can say, well, I'm not being evaluated then. But but generally speaking, all your interactions with other people. So using the example of an athlete, um, when you are walking across campus and you see another student and how you interact with that student, whether you know that student or not, um, that student is evaluating you and forming an opinion of you. And I think that young people today and, I, and, and players, so high school players and college players sometimes don't realize that. They don't realize that not only are you being evaluated by coaches, by opposing, um, opposing coaches, by other players, by the referees, that's another example. So how you interact with a referee is important. That referee is evaluating you. It could make a slight difference in what happens in a call the referee makes or whether to give somebody a technical or not. Um, but I used to tell my high school players, you're not just being evaluated when you're in the gym. And by the way, sometimes a high school player, uh, when they're running a drill, doesn't think they're being evaluated by me is if I'm not focused um, intently on that drill. And instead I'm looking around the, the gym, we're doing stations as an example. 
and they don't realize, and I would tell them, I say, I'm scanning the gym and I'm seeing how you do when I'm not speaking directly to you. Yeah. And you need to know that I'm basically evaluating you all the time. And again, uh, you have to explain that's not meant in a negative sense. I can be evaluating you in a very positive manner. So you might be exhibiting excellent leadership skills all the time. I'm evaluating that. And that's how I come to the conclusion that Billy is an excellent leader, an excellent teammate, that sort of thing. Um, I think that's important. I tell young people that all the time. So, and if you asked any player that played for me in high school, if you ask them this question, when are you being evaluated? They will all answer all the time. And I'm very proud of that. Nice. Well, that's great. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about your time as a coach. When, well, I'll start with a story about myself and how we related. So as a senior, you probably remember this. I went from having rode the bench, bounced in and out for three years, and not really having confidence that I would play as a senior. I, you know, kind of told myself I was going to try, but I basically resigned that I was going to get my degree and I was going to be a good teammate and give it my best shot. But seeing all the new kids come in, I really didn't think that I was good, you know, going to play in the rotation. Um, then I was surprised that the first time he called out the blue team, I was on the blue team. I was like, okay, maybe I'm going to be in the rotation. That's kind of exciting and scary. And then in game three, I was in the starting lineup. And so that was also just my first start in college. It was just kind of out of nowhere, in my opinion. Although I had noticed that I'd been appreciated for some of the things I could control, like effort and energy, and that was motivating as a player, for sure. But, so I played, and I was basically doing enough to not screw up for the first chunk of games before I went to home for winter break. And then Brady sent out clips of everybody's individual performance before Christmas break, and we were told to study them, and all the coaches watched all the players. And I watched it, my dad watched it, all the coaches watched it, and it was glaring that there was one thing about me that was off, and that was that I was shooting just 10% tentatively, trying to flick it up over defenders. I wasn't shooting like I did in drills. And so I was shooting, I think, 36% from three, 37 before winter break. Um, and so I had been you know, convinced. Brady told me I'd rather have to tell you to rain, rain it back than for me to beg you to take shots. I want you to, you know, take some bad, bad shots in the second half. One thing that you brought up to me, and I think you may have suspected that this would resonate with me as we're both kind of numbers nerds is you said, um, if you stick your nose in the shot for the rest of the year and you shoot it with conviction as if no one's closing out, you'll probably get three or four shots blocked but you'll probably make 20 or 25 more for the rest of the season. And somehow that really did click with me. It was like that statistical analysis of it kind of unlocked this other level of confidence where I was like, yeah, he's right. So and it's not even about not getting my shot blocked. Um, it's about, you know, it doesn't matter if I get it up over the defender, if it's a bad rushed shot. So that kind of mental frame shift helped me develop confidence as a senior. And then obviously I went on to, finally find true confidence as a senior for the rest of the year and had a, a great stretch of games. I will, I'd say all that just to um, set up the question. So how did you as a coach, you obviously, I'm going to, I will have introduced you in the intro with your coaching acc accolades, but you're a very successful high school coach. What did you do to try to instill confidence into your players? And did you have different techniques for different styles of players or did you try to just use the same thing for everyone? 
for sure, I had different techniques for different players. You fit in the category. Now, first of all, I didn't have, when we're talking about you personally, I didn't have the history with you because my first year at Regis was your senior year. Right. And um, so I came in and I could look at the stats and how much you played and didn't play, but I didn't have the history, nor did I know what your mental makeup was at that time. And I can recall our interactions with each other and then um, us talking as coaches and you fit in the category of a player that's better than you think you are. And I coached many players like that. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a, it's definitely a different, there are actually more players like that than I thought there would be when mm -hmm. I was a high school coach. And I think part of that comes from my own experience as a player. Um, because I was a really, really good player. And of course, you were as well, I know, in high school. But um, I had a pretty high degree of self-confidence as a player. And I backed it up with, you know, with big numbers and everything. But um, I, so I was a little surprised at the number of people that I came across as players. And I'm thinking of some in my mind right now that I coached as high school players. And I would sit down with them. And so part of the technique to build the confidence is I would sit down and look at them and say, um, just what we told, just what I told you about the shot blocking. And by the way, I was a sh big shooter too. And mm -hmm. so, um, somebody I think told me that at a young age that said, you may have a few shots blocked, but you're a tremendous shooter. So pretend the defender's not there and yeah, you'll get a couple blocked, but you're going to make more instead of trying to alter your release, yeah. you know, to avoid getting it blocked. So I, I think that's a successful analytical strategy, but as far as building the confidence, I would use numbers and I would also say to you. Um, you know, I think you're a better player than you think you are. Yeah. And why, so why is that important though for me to say that? It's important for me to say that to you because I'm your coach. Mm -hmm. And so you want your coach to have confidence in you, confidence that's backed up, not just conf not, you know, confidence that doesn't have any data to support it. But I've watched you practice enough. I've seen you shoot. In your case, you and I did spend many hours in the gym together. So, and I was a shooting expert and, and I could tell you're a really good shooter. And so you don't have to be a brain surgeon to figure that out. Um, and so when you see those kind of players, you say we need, and also I look at it, especially when I was a head coach, I look at it in the whole structure of the team. And so if I put, if you had been on my high school team, I would have said to you, let's compare you to the other players on the team as it relates to shooting ability. And I would say, and I said these kind of things to my players and say, where do you think you rank as far as the best shooters on the team? And usually the guys with, with that are not, they don't think they're as good as they are, they rank themselves lower. Mm -hmm. Now, the other thing I used to do, and I don't know if we've ever talked about this, is I did peer surveys. And so I would have everybody on the team fill out, and I gave them sheets on all kinds of different stuff, and I could show you these, but I'd say, who's the best three-point shooter on the team? And rank everybody, mm -hmm. one to 15. Who's the best passer on the team? Who's the best rebounder? Who's the, be the best teammate? Who's the most team-oriented? Who's the best in the weight room? And that sort of thing. And so I would, that I'm a data guy, like you said, I'm a, I'm a numbers nerd. And, um, but I would take that and show you. And you would usually, so as it relates to shooting, so you would say, well, I rank sixth on the team. And then all your teammates would rank you and they say, you rank second right. on the team. And I would show you that. Right. And I would say, so here's, here's the, so it's not just me. 
right. that's saying this. It's me and and I actually also participated in the ranking. The coaches would all do it as well. But I'd say, Billy, here's what your teammates say. Mm-hmm. You're second. Well, that's how I would try to build confidence in you. So I would. I gave you data, and and this is where I think some coaches don't use data in the right way. And I yeah. think you use data to try to build that confidence. Now, I would also say, and I I used to say to my players in high school, and they would always say, I say, if you know, I would say, if you can shoot well, you're playing for the right coach. Yeah. Because if you can shoot well, I want you to shoot. And I looked at, um, you know, the, the three-point, you know all that about how I looked at the three-point shot. I loved it. And, and getting three points, obviously, the best shot in basketball is a layup or a dunk. The next best is an open three. Yeah. And there are people that have done master's thesis on those, you know, uh, on those subjects. So if you can shoot, you'd love to play for me. But um, so long-winded answer to your question, I absolutely use different strategies for different players and people that were lousy three-point shooters. And we all, you know, you played with a whole bunch of those guys and I coached a whole bunch of those guys. Yeah. And I would say to them, I would say, why are you shooting the three so much? <laughs> and, and then they would say, well, I think I'm good at it. And I would say, well, you know, let's look at the numbers. So that's why we track numbers in practice and that sort of thing. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't directly say to them, you're terrible. But I'd say, well, here are your numbers. And so if we can have a chance, would it be better for Billy to shoot the three or for you to shoot the three? You know, what would you do? And the other thing, um, so anyway, so as a coach, that's how, that's how I approach that. And I think that's the right way. Uh, so you're also asking me a little bit about my coaching technique in general. And one of my huge coaching techniques was to work with each of my players um, in to, to tell them that I want them to be very successful. Sometimes players don't think that about their coach. And I, I used to say to my team all the time, I can't be successful as the head coach unless you guys are successful. Right. So, I mean, that doesn't, you know, it doesn't make sense for me. How, why would I not want you to be successful? Right. It doesn't even make sense. I, ultimately, I'd get fired, you know, if you guys are not successful. Um, so I want you to be successful, and I'm going to help you be as successful as you can. And I was able to convince the players um, that I really meant that. And you do that with, you know, building a relationship and that sort of thing. And I know you knew that I had your best interests at heart. Um, and I honestly thought you were a better player than you thought you were. Yeah. Um, and I participated in all those meetings and this does say a lot about your, um, some of the stuff you're doing with helping kids with their focus and, and all that kind of stuff, because, uh, if you can get a player to feel, to perform at his highest level of ability by raising his confidence level, you've all succeeded. You've succeeded as the coach and the player has succeeded. So it's all good. Yeah, absolutely. And we, as players all felt that. Um, viscerally when the new staff came in, it was you, um, Benjamin, Kyle, Kenny, and, and Coach Brady. Just that things, you know, there was PB&Js in the office. They were giving out Gatorades. Coaches were always available to shoot. Um, it did feel like it was like, it was very clear that the coaches were on our team. And even yeah. though the standards were very clear and intense and we worked hard and there was no cutting corners or any bad behavior was tolerated, it, it did mean a lot to us that uh, the coaches were definitely on our side and they almost put us first with the things that they would do for us. So stuff like that, I noticed clearly as a senior, little things that can boost a player's confidence or even just get a player through a tough day when yes. you have two tests and you're in a fight with your girlfriend. And we, show, all, yeah. we all have those days. Showing up when 
and you've got a support system that's that positive, that definitely means a lot. Okay, we're gonna do a few, we're finished with a few rapid fire questions. So you can, you don't have to be one word answers or anything, but I'll just rattle off a few questions. What book or what few, which few books should all athletes and coaches read? Well, number one, Success is a Choice by Rick Pitino. Uh, now, Rick Pitino hasn't had the most exemplary personal life, but that is a fabulous book, mm -hmm. Success is a Choice. Um, for business, I think the book Good to Great is a terrific book. Um, I can't remember the author's name right now. It's a... Uh... Collins? Jim I think Collins? it is Collins. Yeah. I think it is Jim Collins. Yeah. yeah. I read uh, I read less of the audiobook of that. It's good. Too. Yeah. The that's fly, a terrific book. The flywheel book. effect is interesting. Uh, yes. Where you, you know, the big successes come with little improvements every day. And then as the flywheel begins to turn, it builds momentum. I thought that was a good analogy. Great right? analogy. Yeah. That's a terrific book. Um, so let's see off the top of my head. So those are any of the... So books about some of the great coaches, uh, I do, you know, the John Wooden book, They Call Me Coach, is a great book. But as we've already discussed, I'm very partial uh, yeah. to John Wooden stuff. Mike Krzyzewski has uh, written some excellent books on leadership. Mm -hmm. He's going to grab his, his Mike Krzyzewski book here. Yes, in Smith, the Carolina way. Oh, yeah, Leading with the Heart. So Leading with the Heart by Mike Krzyzewski, Successful Strategies for basketball business and life cool uh, for players the best book for basketball players in my opinion is this book a book that nobody's ever heard of it's called stuff good players should know written by Dick Devenzio who recently passed away oh, cool I actually spoke to him before he passed away in my opinion that is the best book for basketball players anywhere I'll give you a funny story about that. When I was coaching, when I first started coaching, I was coaching youth, uh, middle school players. And I got a hold of this book, read it, and said, this is the best basketball book. So when it came time to do a coach's gift at the end of the year, my wife collected money from the families to get a coach's gift for me. And instead, I had already put her up to this. We turned around and spent their money on a copy of this book for each of the players. Mm and gave it um, to each of our players. And one of them, Jimmy Bartolotta, who became the National Division Three Player of the Year at MIT his senior year in college, so best player in the country, Division Three level. Mm -hmm. He was also first team All-State in the state of Colorado as a senior in high school. Uh, Jimmy stole the tip in one of our key games um, leading up to the state championship, and he turned to me and he, he said, "That's right out of stuff, um, uh, you know, and where I got that." But that's a that's a terrific book. So off the top of my head, those would be who is uh, who's Dick Davinzio? So yeah. he's a he w was he he did pass away. Um, he played at Duke actually, but I had never heard of him. Uh -huh. And he has written a number. If you look up at, at my bookshelves, he's written a number of other books as well. So he was a former player. That wasn't a ridiculously good player, but somehow he would give coaching or uh, not coaching clinics. He would do player camps mm. and very intense player camps. Mm. Um, but he also wrote this book. Okay. That, yeah, stuff, terrific book. Stuff by Dick Vienzo. I'm going to borrow this. this you, awesome. Yeah, you can absolutely. I have multiple great. copies of it. Oh, cool. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, another question here. Um, Jordan, LeBron, or Kobe, and why? Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, I'm a huge Lakers fan, but to me, um, it's Michael Jordan. And, um, yeah, though, I mean, those guys, it's really funny. I'll, I'll expand a little bit, but I'll also tell you, I used to give my high school players a survey that said, who is the greatest basketball player of all time? Who's the greatest football player of all time? And who's the greatest baseball player of all time? And the reason I would do that is to show them that there are reasonable differences of opinions mm. that people have because players, high school players in particular, and I think college players are similar in this regard. They see things like, how come the coach doesn't think I'm better mm. than these other players? And I would explain to the players, guys, it's not this black and white. It's very close. Mm -hmm. And when I have you say, who is the greatest basketball player of all time? One of you says Kobe. One of you says um, Jordan. And one of you says um, LeBron. Mm -hmm. And then somebody else says Bill Russell or, or, you know, Will Chamberlain or some, you know. And so those are what I call reasonable differences of opinion. What's not a reasonable difference of opinion is when you say, is it Michael Jordan or um, Andre Iguodala or Andre Iguodala? Yeah. yeah. Who's obviously a very good player, but, yeah. but not in Michael Jordan's league. And mm -hmm. so that's an example of that's an easy one to yeah. figure out. Not easy to figure out the other. The reason I picked Jordan, though, um, was his ability, incredible ability to bring it every night. And, and I don't know if you've heard this story, but... Um, and I've met, let's see, I've met Michael Jordan, um, multiple times, but never met e either of the other two at this point in my life. Mm -hmm. But Jordan was quoted as saying, and I've read books about all three, but Jordan was quoted as saying, um, I gave it my all every night because I never knew if somebody had come to the game that night and it was the only game that they'd ever seen me play. Mm -hmm. And I wanted them to leave, you know, with the understanding of how good of a player I was. And also, you know, his practice ethic was ridiculous. Now, Kobe's practice ethic was known as pretty ridiculous too. But I would give the edge to Michael Jordan. And he also won, you know, the most titles. Uh, and he would have won two more, most likely, had he not mm -hmm. done the baseball thing. Um, fabulous defender. I think he was probably a little better. LeBron's probably the weakest of those three defenders. And he's really good. Yeah. Was really good. And he's certainly showing how good he is right now. Yes. It's yeah. kind of ridiculous. Age, what is he, 35? He's going to turn 35 like in a day or in, yeah. like right around now. Pretty incredible. Do you like the designated hitter? No. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, and I guess partially because I grew up a Dodgers fan in the National League. but I, And as a coach, I think the designated hitter it reduces a lot of the chess pieces from a strategy standpoint. Now I get it. One of my sons in particular is very pro designated hitter. <laughs> and he says, it's just boring to watch pitchers bat. Yeah. And I get that. And one problem I do have is I don't think the different leagues should do it differently. I don't right. think we should have a different rules for the national league and the American league. And then it gets to the world series and it's, you know, whoever's the home team. Um, but my primary reason is, um, that I think it it takes away some of the strategy of the game. Now, all that being said, if you, we could talk about baseball for a long time, um, <laughs> but I think the baseball games are going on way too long, so they've got to figure out something. When yeah. I was younger, uh, the baseball games didn't last near this long, so all these pitching changes and everything is extending the games, which is a bad thing. Yeah. 
Should uh, Should Barry Bonds be in the Hall of Fame? No. Because he cheated? Yeah, because okay. it was obvious. And I've read some books on that, too. It's just too obvious. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, if, if somebody's going to be in the Hall of Fame that's not in there that's more deserving, I think Pete Rose... Right. Um, now I'm not for I'm not for the players betting yeah. and stuff, but he never bet against his team. He bet on his team to win. So yes, that's stupid. Yes, that's against the rules. But I think that's a little different than taking performance enhancing drugs and um, you know seeing the difference. And Barry Bonds was a surefire Hall of Famer without doing anything. You know, he's a phenomenal player before he started doing all the steroids. But he's guilty of sin and to. Um, and again, I've read some books on that, so I I clearly believe he's guilty, and anyone that says he isn't is just denying the facts. Yeah. So I say no to that. Um, if you were to start your athletic career over, what's one clear change that you would want to make in either your attitude, where you ended up playing? Is there one thing that you uh, regret that you'd like to change? Well, I have a number of I have a number of regrets. I don't in um, as I've gone through my life, I don't think, you know, I've made perfect decisions all the time and, and that sort of thing. I do have a, a little bit of regret that I didn't continue playing college basketball. And I actually, um, continued to get a lot better as a basketball player after I got out of college. I was very young, um, for, I graduated high school at 17. Um, so I was very, very young, but be that as it may, I, I just, by the time I was 25, I was really playing at a, at a high level with guys that were playing in the NBA and that sort of thing. Um, but I was told that I had this wrist injury that was going to prevent me playing for a year. Now that all being said, my wife, whenever I bring up something like that, my wife says, well, had you not transferred uh, to ASU, we wouldn't have met each other. So there's that, there's that whole thing. Um, one of the things that I wish was a little bit different though, was the weight training. And the, um, we had virtually zero weight training and, and I actually was playing basketball at a time when some, a lot of people believed that extensive weight training was bad for you. It would, you know, having bigger muscles would screw up your shot and stuff like that. And obviously that's been proven to be completely, um, ridiculous, a ridiculous theory. So, um, yeah, not too many. I think, you know, we could all do things differently, but you can't beat yourself up too much about, um, about that. So I don't know if I've really answered your question, but I, um, I'm happy with the sports I've played. I'm, I'm very happy that I didn't play football given everything that's given everything that's happened now with the football players and my wife's dad, um, played for years in the NFL and ended up getting uh, CTE. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I, I I had a big, and I, we love football. We love football. We're a football family. My wife's father played pro football and coached for 30 years. My dad played major college football at USC. Um, but I'm hoping that our grandchildren will not play football. Um, yeah. I just think it's it's too bad uh, at this point. So no, no big regrets. Wish there had been some weight training. Sometimes I wish that I'd continued. I played one, used one year of eligibility for college basketball. Certainly um, could have used more. Right. Yeah, it's interesting how I noticed that too. I felt like I just finally connected with basketball right as it was ending and I was only 22. And yeah, I think that part of the reason why I'm doing this and doing this podcast and doing some of the work I'm doing with meditation for basketball is not just to increase players' performances, 
but to help players connect with what's important about sports before it's too late. Because I think a lot of us, I definitely look back at some of my high school success, like when I win an MVP trophy and immediately start thinking about how I was going to leverage it for some recruiting opportunity or, you know, what does it matter if I don't reach this goal? And to look back at how, you know, even my Little League success was in a similar vein, how I think I, you know, you still want to look ahead and have goals and look ahead of the future, but I think I probably did too much of that growing up. And as a senior, you know, I've really sunk into, and part of it was because I had struggled so much that I was Mm -hmm. just overwhelmed and happy to be playing minutes again and doing well. And, but just the level of joy I felt playing was unlike anything I'd had before. So, you know, I'd love to help other athletes get there before their career ends because it's, it really is, you know, you're told quite a bit like, well, one day this is going to end, but until there's like three games left and you're like, wow, this is it. You don't really connect with that feeling. Right. Well, a couple of comments to that. Um, number one, and I thought of another thing when I played, there was no three point line. Yeah. And I went back and chatted with my college coach. Um, this is probably 10 years, maybe even 20 years ago. And he made the comment. He said, holy smokes, if there had been a three-point line <laughs> when you played, um, because I was quite a good shooter and I shot from long distance, and you didn't get any extra points for it. And so once I started playing after college and stuff, and there was a three-point line, I lived behind that thing. So yeah. I wish there had been a three-point line. And then the other thing is you brought up something about how you felt. Now, I, I was always an, an extremely hard worker and I did not have the experience that you had at any level. Um, I was either the best player. My, I mean, I was the MVP of my high school team. I was the MVP of my college freshman team. Um, I was the, you know, one of the best couple players pretty much on every team I ever played on. But one of the things I think that young people, one of the things I tried to instill, so here's another great uh, thing for you I think you'll appreciate. And I used to tell my players this. I used to say, you know, it's funny. um, I have never come across somebody that's a player that says, oh my gosh, I worked way too hard on my game um, when I was in high school or in college. I, gosh, I'm so sorry that I worked so hard on it. I shouldn't have done that. And then I always qualify by saying, I'm sure there are a couple of people out there that do feel that way, but I've never come across anybody that said that. On the other hand, I can't tell you how many people I've come across that say, I wish I would have worked harder on my game when I was in high school or college. Um, I wish, I wish I would have been, uh, harder. I'll, tell, I'll digress and tell a quick story about that. Um, a guy named Matt Bolden, I don't know if you know Matt, he played at Thunder Ridge High School, first team All-State, Gatorade Player of the Year in the state of Colorado, went to Gonzaga and was the uh, MVP, uh, not only of Gonzaga, but of that league when he was in college. So that's how good of a player he was. And he's uh, played a number of times in the D League. He's a friend, a good friend of my son's and a friend of mine. And Matt came to one of my practices at Arapahoe when I was the high school coach there. And I had Matt talk to the kids and, and, uh, he was, he was a little reluctant to do it, but I said, you know, you've had some terrific experiences. And he said, well, why don't you ask me questions and I'll answer the questions. And I said, okay. So we asked about, you know, a bunch of different stuff and the kids asked him questions. And then I asked this, do you have any regrets about when you were a high school player? So anything you would tell these kids? And he said, my biggest regret is, he said, obviously I was a really good player, but my biggest regret was I didn't 
push my teammates hard enough. Mm-hmm. And he said, I was just trying to be buddies with everybody and we're having a good time and everything. And he said, so my junior and senior year, we didn't win. When he was a sophomore, our team eliminated them. We beat him in the state championship game. And, uh, or I think that was when he was a junior, excuse me. But um, so Matt said, what I regret is I should have been tougher on my teammates and mm-hmm. been more demanding. And I said, isn't that a revealing statement mm. where, and, but instead we were just like, oh, you know, it's, it's not cool to do yeah. that. And, and there's a, you know, there's a right way and a wrong way to do that. Yeah. Um, but I find that really interesting. And back to, again, you don't find anybody that says, um, gosh, I worked too hard on it. Yeah. Who, um, as your dinner time as a coach, which player comes to mind as being the best leader and whoever that is, can you describe that player? Wow, I had a lot of really good ones um, in my time as a coach. So I have to think about that. We had, um, well, I coached at Arapahoe. I was fortunate to, when I was the head coach at Arapahoe. I coached the state player of the year, Levi Knutson. He went on to play at CU. And uh, Levi was a fab, he was the best player in the state by a large margin. Um, and he was an excellent lead by example guy. And so I appreciated the other players. He was great with the kids. He wasn't hard on the, on the guys. Um, but his, his work ethic was off the charts. So he was a great leader in that respect. Uh, Jimmy Bartolotta from heritage, who I already mentioned, um, Jimmy was great from a, a trying to get the other players to perform better. He could be sometimes uh, hard on them, but he was a, uh, an incredibly hard worker, set a great example in that respect. And you know Jimmy, yeah. of course, from leading you guys up the mountain. Yeah, he's uh, I, could, I, could, I picked up on his intensity even uh, on a hike like that. Yeah, yeah he's, he's an intense, yeah. intense player and yeah. very, very driven uh, player. So... Um, I, but the qualities of the, so more generically, so those uh, two pop up and I had some other, I had a lot of, of terrific, um, young men that were leaders and, and excellent, uh, players as well. But the quality, I think it's the, um, the quality of, can you get other players to play better, you know, around you? And that's a, that's a hard quality, especially for a high school player and even for a college player. If you look at there, so there's a nuance to that. And, you know, in the business world, they talk about the, the sandwich technique of criticism and praise that if I'm going to criticize you, I first praise you. Then I put the criticism in, then I praise you again. So the sandwich, you know, the meat is the criticism and the, and the bun is the compliment. So there's that. And there's also in the Dick DiVenzio book, and I don't know if it's stuff, it might be, um, running the show. So another one of his books is called running the show. Mm -hmm. And he talks about uh, leadership. And I actually gave that to Jimmy Bartolotta, who we just mentioned, because Jimmy sometimes would be a little hard on his fellow players. And it's something like as a player, to be a player leader, you need to have a ratio of approximately six to one compliments to criticisms Mm -hmm. when you're dealing with a fellow player. Otherwise, um, you're going to be tuned out. And so um, and to Jimmy's credit, he would, he would work on that. Mm. Um, and I also think, you know, if you take, um, well, I'll digress and tell you a story about the pro basketball. So a good friend of mine 
is Stu Jackson, who was the, he's currently an assistant commissioner in the Big East, and he was the head coach of the New York Knicks. Um, and I've known Stu, we were sales reps together at IBM many, many years ago. And so when he was head coach of the Knicks, it was when um, Patrick, <clears throat> excuse me, Patrick Ewing was their best player. And Stu said at that time, and Patrick is now, you know, the head coach of Georgetown, he's in the Hall of Fame. But at that time, Patrick didn't really want to be the leader. And the leader was really Mark Jackson, a guy you've probably heard of. He's in the broadcasting business now, and he's been a coach. But Mark was a young, he was like a second-year guard out of St. John's at the time. Um, and it was a difficult situation because Patrick was the best player on the team, uh, but Mark was, was taking more of a leadership role. And what Stu said is, I wish it was like the Celtics where Larry Bird is the unquestioned leader. He's the hardest worker on the team. He's the unquestioned leader. And I have found it, it sure makes it a lot easier when your leader is your best player and hardest worker. And actually things are a lot easier uh, if your best player is your hardest worker, yeah. you know, instead of uh, the best player just having so much more talent. Um, so anyway, I'm rambling a little bit now, but yeah, no, that's great. Um, I think somebody like Noah King jumped out. No, it's a, yeah, yeah, no, it was a really good Obviously, example. Uh, yeah, just in my experience as a player, he had a unique style in which it was almost like his just his presence. Like if we'd split up the team into three on three on three, and you were on his team, I felt a little you're going to do a little better. tinge of like, okay, I got to step my shit up for Noah yeah. here. Like I don't, you know, Noah wins all these drills. I can't like let him down, right. <laughs> you know, uh, and he never gets tired, so I have to you know push it. So yeah, it's interesting different styles of leadership because I've been around other players who didn't have that natural leadership gift and they would try to kind of manufacture it and they definitely were not on that six to one ratio. And I was right. like, you know, you're not my coach, man, shut up. Like the, so it's, it's interesting being, especially in college, being a role player who is not, a, you know, in a leadership role, like a, a little bit by example, just by consistency showing up, but definitely more reserved, um, dealing with whoever becomes the, you know, somebody like Christian Little has become the, yes. the the alpha on the Rages team now. And he's got a very different personality than Noah even. So yeah. it's interesting. Uh, last one I'll end with here. Something that jumped out to me when we coached together in the coaching meetings, coaches meetings, we would do something like rapid fire, give your opinion. Um, I'm not sure how to phrase this, but Brady would ask for all of our opinions for about a player or about which play we should run or about whether or not something was working. I remember in the first few times it would get to me and I would kind of qualify my question like, well, this, 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 and Brady would literally just move on. Like he, there was no time for that. Like, you know, he was training me to give my honest opinion. And I still, you know, going from a player and being someone who's kind of a people pleaser, I always felt this, like this, um, temptation to give Brady what he wanted to hear. Like it's, if, if he's running the play this way, I should probably tailor my answer that way. But I always noticed that you had very, you had a, you're very skillful in, and Brady was someone who's easier than many bosses because he was great at accepting, uh, differing dif opinions. Yeah. Different opinions. He was awesome about that, which I, I learned later as in my time with him coaching, I felt fine giving my opinion as once I learned that he was cool with it and he actually expected you to do that. But even in the beginning, I noticed that you were the most comfortable in the room with giving opinion that was 100% contrary to what Brady was saying in such a way that didn't come off as um, insubordinate or disrespectful. Do you have any um, thoughts on how 
that should be done or any way or how did you develop that skill? Thank you for that compliment. Yeah. Um, 30 years ago when I was working for IBM, I was in, uh, I was getting an evaluation, meaning I was being evaluated and, uh, I had been an IBM employee, um, for about 10 years at that point. So I was well into my career and I was a staff manager. Um, and actually this was just shortly before I left IBM. So I was probably 12 years into my career and I'm sitting there getting my performance evaluation. And my manager says to me, he says, you know what? You have one of the most unique abilities of anybody I've ever managed. And I said, what's that? And, and we got along great and everything. And so, and I had no idea where he was going. And he says, you have the ability to disagree without being disagreeable. Right. And he said, that is a unique ability and you really have that. And I said, wow, what a, you know, what a nice compliment. I hadn't really thought about it that way. Um, so I don't know. I don't know where I got that. I don't know. I think it does go back to the focus on, I'm always respectful of other people's opinions. I really am. I think it's one of the things that makes the world interesting. And so unless you're just a complete moron and saying something that's so far out, I would call you out on that if you did that. And I would call players out on that. But like the example that I gave before, who's the better player when you ask me, you know, Michael Jordan, Kobe, or LeBron, that's a reasonable difference of opinion. Yeah. And, and when you, you know, if I say, are you the, where do you rank in the top five shooters on this team? And you say second, and I rank you first, that's a reasonable difference of opinion. It's when I rank you first and you rank yourself 10th that then somebody is way off base. And so uh, that's just the way, the way I look at things. Now, what you exhibited between Brady and I comes because Brady and I have known each other for many, many years. So you already sort of answered your question when you said you, Billy, first would be hesitant and you know, not say everything. And then later on you were more direct and you'd, you'd say really what you thought, right? Yeah. Well, remember that when you sat with me in the Regis staff meetings, I had already known Brady for, uh, like 13 years. Right. Brady and I were assistant coaches together at Metro state. So I was very comfortable with my relationship with Brady and Brady, very comfortable with me. I also am three times older, you know, than, than the other assistant coaches and most of the guys there, I'm not three times older than Brady, thank goodness. But, um, you know, so I have a lot more life experiences than you guys. And actually in that respect, I have a lot more life experiences than Brady even, but Brady has more coaching experience than I do. Um, so I think it's a com it's a combination of things. So one of it, one of those things, and you've asked me before about some of my interpersonal skills, which people, uh, so when I would get evaluations from people in the past and they would say, that's probably your greatest strength or your, your interpersonal skills. And I think that's a category of that in how to, um, so when I'm discussing things, I don't want to invalidate your opinion, yeah. right? But I am very opinionated and people that know me well say you are very opinionated. Yeah. Um, and so depending on how well I know you, uh, will determine how I express that opinion. And so what you saw between Brady and I would be a very open, honest exchange between two people who have great respect for each other. Mm -hmm. And there's no um, danger in, you know, expressing your opinion openly and honestly. Um, so that's 
Yeah, I think that's great. Yeah, that helps. Um, Definitely a skill worth cultivating. Uh, It's a great, yes. Yes. Been trying to push myself in that way just in general because my tendency is to keep the peace, but keeping the peace can be destructive if you're not saying, telling the truth. And so finding that balance, right? Yeah, people have told, that's very interesting you make that comment on the keeping the peace because I'm not a keep the peace person. No, no, you're not. And I've been told that a lot of times too. And most of the time, I think it's good that it serves to my benefit. Yeah. Sometimes it doesn't. And so uh, there have been times, uh, especially when you're in a subordinate role, like an assistant coach, Mm -hmm. where that can bite you a little bit. Where And I've come across other people where, uh, not in an assistant coach role, but I've come across other people who I've said, why aren't you really saying what you think? And they'll say, I just want to keep the peace. And that usually bothers me a little bit. I'll say... I don't think that's the best way to do it, but it's in their personality. I'm thinking of some people right now um, yeah. who I have respect for, but I, I said, I don't think that's right. I think you need to, to speak up. And some, in some situations, those people would agree with me on what we should do or what the, you know, the thing, and they wouldn't say it. Yeah. And so I want to be able to say, you know, in that situation, well, Billy agrees with me, right. but you know, but you won't, say it in that and then we get outside the room and you say well yeah i do agree with you but i'm just not going to say it (laughs) right and that's yeah and that gets the point of like if you're in a room of people who want to get to the truth and get to the best solution and some of the egos are dampened it doesn't matter who gets there who makes the best argument Uh, i noticed that in our coaching staff where yes you know there was there's always a little bit of you know you want to, you, you, don't, you don't want to sound like an idiot, but you, you still... You want the best the, solution. The purpose of the meetings were to get to the truth of what the best was for the team. And, that's, yeah. and that is a credit to the leader. That's a credit yeah. to Brady. Right. Um, and so he fostered that environment. Yeah. Uh, and that is a wonderful thing for young people, sort of someone like you, to learn and see that. Yeah. And so when a leader fosters that environment, he's doing a great job, he or she. Yeah. is doing a great job as the leader. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, and that one, so I will digress a little bit. When I first became a manager for IBM, I was very young. Uh, I was 20, probably 26, 20, you know, you know your age. And um, I had people reporting to me. One guy was 50 that was reporting to me. Yeah. And so I sat down with him and I said, you know, in my opinion, there's way more I can learn from you than you can learn from me. And I get that. I mean, I am the manager. Uh, and he had just not wanted to go into management and stuff like that. And we had a great relationship. But the thing was, is I set the tone with him and saying, look, I know you you know more you know, than I do in most of these situations. We're all trying to get to the same goal. You know, we're all on the same team. Just what you said about it doesn't really matter who's... And back to my example of me talking to my players and saying, I can't be successful unless you guys are successful. Yeah. So that's the only way yeah. I can be successful. And so, uh, but the credit for that environment that you're talking about, and that's a really key point that if you can learn at a young age, it'll serve you well throughout your career. Brady gets the credit for that. Yes. Yeah. I think that's totally true. And I'm really grateful to have been in that environment and learned how important that is in case I'm ever in a leadership role of trying to consciously cultivate a situation where it's you know brady took it really far if he could tell if you weren't telling saying the truth and he would you know berate you for it it was right. not yeah it wasn't it wasn't even 
that it was it ran so far that he like you were expected to and he could sense if you were trying to sugarcoat your answers um so well this has been great are you uh you on the internet you have twitter or anything do you i'm on twitter but i don't use it i've never posted on twitter but but I am on the internet. I mean, I <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. You have any social media people can follow you at? Right. All of my tens of thousands of listeners are going to oh, know, like, yeah, where to find you. On no, but I don't. Po- I'm not like Mike. Dun- Tell them to follow Mike Dunlap. Yeah, I follow him. Yeah, yeah follow Mike Dunlap. He's okay. yeah. He posts gems, but I don't post anything on Twitter since I'm out, especially since I'm retired. Yeah, and are um, you? Uh, you getting antsy enough to get back on the court at some point? You think? I was asked that this morning. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm not going to say no uh, to that, but I am going to say probably not. Yeah. But I don't know. So if something came up that was really, uh, really interesting to me, really intriguing, maybe mm-hmm. we'll see. Okay. Yeah. Never say never, and always reserve the right to change your mind. There you go. <laughs> There you go. Well, thank you for doing this. Hopefully it's not the last one. It's been really great time. Yeah, I enjoy talking to you as well. And uh, this was fun.